All right, well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see y'all here this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to continue our study uh, that is started in verse 10 that stretches all the way through verse 17. And we spent the past couple of weeks learning about how we are to be practicing perseverance in the face of opposition. That has been the overall theme of the past few weeks of this section. Cody and Justin went through four commands on how we can persevere. Starting in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6, we're first of all to be strong in the Lord. We do that by relying on the strength of God's might. Secondly, we're to put on the full armor of God. We do this so that we can protect ourselves from the scheme of the devil. Third, the third command that we've seen is to take up the full armor of God. We need to be actively putting on the armor of God, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Finally, last time we met, we were commanded to stand firm and we dove deep into what that meant. And we saw several illustrations in scripture of faithful people who stood firm. As we come to verses 14 to 17, we're going to examine the tools that God gives us that allows us to persevere while we are being opposed. So let's read verses 14 to 17 together. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14 says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful that we can look to it whenever we feel oppressed, whenever we feel downtrodden, whenever we are in despair, and we will always find refuge in it because it is from you. I pray that you would humble ourselves, humble us before your word, help us to grow in our knowledge of you, help us to see where we can love you more in our day-to-day lives. We thank you and love you in your name. Amen. The title for our lesson this morning as I was bullied into giving you my title was Practicing Perseverance in the Face of Opposition, Part 3, The Tools for Perseverance. Let me say that again. Practicing Perseverance Amidst Opposition, Part 3, The Tools for Perseverance. If you don't want to write all that down, you can just put underneath the real title, The Armor of God. So, Before we actually go into this passage and dive into what each piece of armor means, I want to kind of level set on some misconceptions and just uh, clarify a few things. So first of all, this passage contains no hope for unbelievers. If you are not a Christian here this morning, the only thing that you can do is you can sit and listen to all the good things that God gives Christians, how he gives them strength, how he supports them in their lives. And the only thing you can do is sit there and realize that that is not you. You do not have that benefit that we are going to look at this morning. As we've already discussed, when does someone wear armor? When they're in a battle, right? When they're in a war. Christians have the right equipment not only to actively fight in a spiritual battle, but to survive and be successful in it. If you are not a Christian here this morning, it's as if we dropped you in an active war zone with nothing but the clothes on your back. Could you survive for a little minute? I mean, maybe. Sure, you could like pick up a rock and throw it at a bad guy and they might get hurt. You know, might get a little sand in their face, but then you'd be dead. So you might be able to survive for a little bit, but really you have no hope of survival. Without the armor of God, you are fighting against Satan with ineffective tools. You may be successful for a minute or two, but ultimately the love that you have for yourself, the love that you have for your sin will be your destruction. 
How do you know if this is you? If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, that sounds terrible. I don't want that to be me. But how do you know if it's you? First ask yourself, have you repented of your sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? Most of you probably would say, yes, I've done that. But I don't know, do I still fall in that same category of the unprepared, the unsaved? You know, if if you think you have, maybe you remember praying a prayer when you were little, well then examine the patterns of sin in your life. Obviously we are still, we are all still sinners. We all will have sin in our lives until the day that we die. But are the sins that you struggle with today, the same sins that you struggled with a year ago, the same sins that you struggled with when you were saved and not even the same sins. Do you struggle to the same gravity of those sins? Do you see any growth in your fight against your flesh? If you see kind of bursts of, you know, doing a little bit better here or there, but ultimately you fall back into the same exact patterns, that might be an example that you may not be saved because you're trying to fight your flesh by yourself with ineffective tools. We, I'm including myself here, need to rely on the armor of God to successfully make it through this life to be victorious against our sin. That's the first clarification. Secondly, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul says, Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hold on, time out. Didn't we just read in Ephesians that the breastplate was righteousness and the helmet was salvation? I mean, what gives? Obviously, this means that scripture contradicts itself. None of this matters. You guys have a good night. I'll see you guys later. No, obviously not. That's silly. We see these illustrations of armor several times in scripture. What I want you to remember is that it doesn't matter what the illustration itself is. As you take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and Ephesians chapter 6, the same things that we see over and over are the attributes that are given to those specific pieces of armor. I mean, Paul could have easily said like, put on the Kevlar vest of truth, use the sniper of justice, drink the Gatorade of truth. Like it it doesn't matter what the illustrations are. The more important part is the attributes that are given to those illustrations because ultimately it's God that is giving us his attributes. Third, these four verses can be broken down into into two categories. They, you call them the, the passive armor and the active armor. Verses 14 and 15 talk about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of the gospel. These three items, a breastplate, a belt, and shoes, would be something that a soldier would have on him at all times. It doesn't matter if he's back at camp, if he's cooking meals, if he's sleeping. His breastplate, belt, and shoes were something that he had on him at all time. Same thing for believers. These are attributes that we have all the time. But verses 16 and 17 talk about taking up the shield of faith, receiving the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. There is a clear action happening. Does a soldier pick up his shield and his sword when he's going to go cook dinner for the rest of the soldiers? No, like that, he doesn't need those. When do you need to pick up your shield and your sword and your helmet? When you're going to go fight, when you're going to go attack, or when you are being attacked and you need to defend. So as we think of these two sections, you could break it down into two sections. The passive part of the armor, which is something that we have all the time, and the active, which are spiritual qualities that we have whenever we are actively fighting against sin. And finally, the last clarification before we get into our passage. As we've been talking about the armor of God, we've used this phrase for about three, four weeks now. I want us to clarify that phrase itself. So the phrase, the armor of God, when we talk about it, we need to remember that God is the source of the armor. And everyone write this down because I'm going to ask this several times. And this is the, one of the key points that I want to hit home. God is the source of the armor. Remember, we don't care about the illustrations itself. We don't necessarily care 
the pieces of armor. What we care about are the qualities being described here in these four verses. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. Where do all these qualities originate from? From God. Why? Because who is the source of our armor? Hey, thank you, God. It was faint, but I heard it. I know you guys are going to get better. <clears throat> we all need God's strength to stand against the devil and his schemes because in and of ourselves, we are unable to do so. The only way to be successful against the attacks of Satan are by putting on the same qualities of God. With these things in mind, let's go to our passage itself, Ephesians 6, 14. And if you want to draw a stick figure and draw the helmet and the breastplate and the sword and shield, you know, I'm not going to stop you. Whoever uh, does the best drawing and turns it in, you guys get a free read-through next month. Thank you, Phoebe, for laughing. So first of all, the belt of truth. Number one, the belt of truth. You'll notice that in our verse, it says, gird your loins with the truth. And Girding our loins is not something we typically do in American culture, but this was quite common for the Roman soldiers. Uh, Roman soldiers underneath all their armor would wear a long tunic. Um, it was a bit shorter than the civilians, a civilian's tunic. Y'all know what I mean by a tunic. It's like a, almost like a dress looking thing. Um, it, the civilian's tunic would go down like to their calves or ankles, where a soldier's tunic would be about knee length high. I mean, in today's standard, you could describe it as like a wool dress. Most tunics at that time were made of wool. And it'd be safe to assume that most guys here haven't tried to run or be mobile in a wool dress. From what I hear, it's not easy. I mean, first of all, wool is not a forgiving material. It's stiff, it gets hot easily, and you can't really move around on it easily. I mean, is that, a, ladies, is that a fair assessment of wool? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So soldiers, in order to be effective in battle, they needed to gird up their loins to be able to move around quickly. This is where the belt comes into play. When a soldier prepared for battle, the first piece of equipment that he would grab was his belt. And the belt was used to keep the bottom half of his tunic in place. I was going to show you all an illustration of what it looks like to gird your loins, but instead I'm just going to traumatize you with a visual. So essentially you have, you know, a long tunic, right? And so the soldier would bundle it up and he would bring it all forward. Then he would wrap it around his legs and kind of tie it up front. So instead of having like a long dress looking thing, it's a nice five inch inseam that he can now, you know, be active and run around in. The belt was important because the last part after he bundled it all up and put it in is he would tuck, he would tie his tunic and then he would tuck it into that belt. That belt allowed him to move around freely. It's important as well because there was also some leather straps that hung down from it that provided extra protection. Um, it held their swords, it held their knives. It also held the breastplate in place as they were in battle. So the belt, as small as it may seem, was a very important part to a Roman soldier's armor. The first piece of armor that Paul tells us to put on is the belt of truth. To gird our loins with the truth. What does this mean? Throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has spoken about the truth. Turn to chapter 1. <clears throat> In chapter 1, we see it as a message of salvation. In chapter 4, using the truth as a tool to grow up. And again, if we love our neighbors, we will speak to them in truth. Therefore, it's safe to conclude that Paul is referring to the belt of truth as the knowledge of truth about Jesus that comes from Jesus himself. And another way to put it is the whole truth contained and revealed in the Bible perfectly lived out through Jesus. For us, it means that we need to have both an understanding of what the truth is. So we need to be knowledgeable about the truth that's found in the Bible, but we also need to act upon that truth. 
How does knowing the truth and acting upon it help us fight Satan, though? Well, first, it's the truth that saves us, right? Jesus describes this in John 8 when he tells the Pharisees that the truth will set them free. Again, in John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays that the truth will sanctify his disciples. Later in 1 John 2, John, talking about spiritual growth, ends by saying, the word of God, the truth, abides in you. The truth lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So first, it's the truth that saves us. Secondly, if your mind is anchored in the truth, if your mind is tied down with the truth, the attacks of of Satan will ultimately fail. When he tries to deceive you with false truth, you take that falsehood and you compare it to the truth of the scripture and you flee from that deception. When you're tempted either internally or externally, you can go back to the truths found in scripture and recognize the sins that you are being tempted of and then you can do the opposite of those sins and glorify God. Simply put, the more that your mind is filled with the truth, the easier it will be to deflect Satan's attacks. So how do we put on the belt of truth? How do we fill our minds with truth? Well, to no one's surprise, this one's pretty easy. You do it by reading the word. You do it by meditating on it, by listening to truthful things, whether it be music, podcasts, whatever it may be. Whenever you fill your mind with the truth, that will help you deflect the attacks of Satan. <clears throat> I mean, even ask yourself, from, from Wednesday to today, we, we spent a good 45 minutes talking about standing firm. You knew that by relying on the truth. What did you change about your spiritual life between Wednesday and today? Is your life exactly the same? Was it, uh, I, we're in the middle school, so I'm going to act like a middle schooler and not listen just one year out the other? How did you put on the belt of truth from our lesson on Wednesday? Christian, the first way that we can have successful spiritual lives is by inundating, by filling our minds with the truth, which in turn will result in our actions being reflective of that truth. The first thing we're to do is to gird up our loins with the truth. The second piece of armor we put on is the breastplate of righteousness. Point number two, the breastplate of righteousness. And when, when we think of this term breastplate, it's, I know, the first thing that comes to my mind is like the Halloween costume, right? It's just that one giant like piece uh, that you put on your chest. And of course it has abs to like intimidate your enemy. Um, in reality, the breastplate was a complex series of plates that were kind of overlaid each other, kind of like shingles, like tiles on a roof. And then they were sewn together to allow flexibility, mobility, and also to provide better protection than like chainmail or other armor that they had at the time. So remember, who is the armor that we're wearing? Where does our armor come from? It comes from God. That's right. Thank you. When Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, He's telling us to act upon the imputed righteousness that we have received from Christ at his death and resurrection. If you'd like to hear why this phrase has to do with the righteousness imputed to us from God, um, most of these verses, if not all of them, are bolded in your Bibles, right? Which means that if it's in bold in the New Testament, it means what? It's a quote from the Old Testament, right? So write these couple passages down. Isaiah 40, 45, verses 20 to 50, and Isaiah 59, 12 to 20. That's where we get a lot of this picture from. So in these two passages in Isaiah, Jesus is shown as the Messiah, and he is putting his righteousness on the people who don't have any. Therefore, The righteousness being described in this passage, the breastplate of righteousness is the practical application of righteousness. The practical application of righteousness, which is also known as justification. 
So justification is when God declares you as righteous before his eyes at the moment of your salvation, even though you're still a sinner. And he does that through a process called imputation. And you're like, wait, imputation, isn't that like a light chicken gravy? No, it's not. Imputation, it's a big fancy word, which essentially means to mark on a ledger. So to write, to note down on a piece of paper. On Friday at Outpost, whenever you pulled your flag, and I heard one team pulled more flag than the others, but nobody cares because we all forget who wins. That's why I stopped coming to Outpost. <clears throat> but anyways, that's, uh, I don't want to go down that road. So whenever you pulled someone's flag at Outpost, what did you do? You walked over to the scorer's table, you handed it to them, and what did the scorekeeper do? They took note of it, right? They marked, yes, you have successfully pulled a flag from the other team. In the same manner, God imputes, God credits our sin to Christ's ledger. Imagine there's two giant pieces of paper, right? One says Edwin, one says Christ. At the moment of my salvation, God looked at me, God looked at these two ledgers and said, all right, on Jesus's ledger, on his notes, Edwin's sin, listed them all out. That, that is who Jesus is. And on mine, forgiveness, Christ's righteousness, forgiveness. And did I deserve that? No, not at all. That's completely not what we should receive. But that is the righteousness that God gives us at the moment of salvation. We see this picture in Romans 3, 23 and 24. We all know Romans 3, 23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's an easy one, right? In fact, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Because verse 24 really hits home the idea of justification. So verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 verses 8 and 9. Once again, Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing knowledge, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, listen, which comes from God on the basis of faith. That, my friends, right there is a picture of justification. God looking at us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect, perfect life and looking at Jesus on the cross as if he deserved to be there when really it should have been us. <clears throat> but how does justification act like a breastplate of righteousness for our spiritual lives? How does justification protect our spiritual lives? Well, just like the Roman breastplate protected his vital organs, God's imputed righteousness on us protects us from false teaching that Satan throws our way. If you were to ask your unbelieving friends, how do you get to heaven? What would most of them say? I mean, just be a good person, right? I mean, I'm going to heaven because I do more good things than bad things. Would that be fair to say? That's what most unbelievers would say, right? And even if you look at any religion aside from biblical Christianity, when you strip away everything else, it comes down to that. You can work your way into heaven if you are good enough. That's a false gospel. That's an attack on God directly from Satan. The doctrine of justification is so important that Martin Luther said, the doctrine of justification is the head, the cornerstone. It alone gives birth to Christian life, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot last for one hour. Justification also helps us to protect from self-doubt that can come both from our status of salvation and the burden of sin. 
Have you ever been so discouraged by your own sin? You look at your life and you're like, man, I, I keep struggling with the same things. I know I'm saved, but over and over, I, I keep falling into this, this pattern of sin. If you've ever felt that way, well, first of all, good, because you are recognizing sin in your life, but also realize that that right there is an attack from Satan because Satan is causing you to doubt that God is good and he will fulfill his promise. I mean, the last song we just sang was before the throne of God above. And listen to what we sang. We sang, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is how you put on the breastplate of righteousness. When you're tempted to despair, when you're tempted to think that God is unhappy with your spiritual progress, when you feel the guilt and the weight of your sin, the shame of your sin, remember that Jesus' work on the cross is final. Your hope is not in yourself. My hope isn't in myself, but in the risen Lord. Write down Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, and call this first to mind when you start feeling this way. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christian, when you are tempted to despair, to start doubting that God will fulfill what he has promised, put on the breastplate of righteousness so that your heart and your soul will be strengthened and encouraged. In fact, turn to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. A common verse that is used to encourage people when they're going through a hard time is Romans eight twenty eight. right? I mean, most of us have used this verse. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. And most of the time it kind of ends right there, right? I mean, you put your arm around your friend and you're like, they're there, God's got it. And then you just kind of awkwardly walk away. Uh, what you can do, a better way to encourage yourself, encourage your friends, keep going. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Isn't that amazing? We have been personally chosen by God and eventually we will be justified. We will be glorified by him. Because of that, there is no need for us to despair. We don't need to worry because God encourages us. <clears throat> the next piece of armor that we see back in Ephesians chapter six are the shoes of the gospel. Point number three, the shoes of the gospel. Let's read verse 15 together. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This morning, a, a lot of you shod your feet with some good looking shoes. And you're like, what did you just say to me? You know, the phrase shod your feet is not something that we typically use. This phrase has to do with the intentionality of putting on the correct footwear for the situation that you're in. In the fall, whenever we have our flag football tournament, I can almost guarantee you that the team with the highest percentage of people that have cleats are gonna win the whole tournament. 
Why? I mean, even myself. I mean, I know I'm one of the fastest people in here. You guys don't have to tell me that. But I mean, I, I'm able to juke people out because I have cleats on and them and they're in the just regular tennis shoes just get sliding on the mud. I mean, with cleats on a wet, muddy field, what do cleats do? They give you traction, right? They give you the ability to move effectively throughout the field. The same went for the Roman soldiers. The footwear that Paul is describing here is essentially the very first version of cleats. In ancient times, soldiers would wear sturdy boots or sandals, and they would actually put uh, nails through the bottom of their boots or sandals to give them more traction, to help them to stand firm, because most of the time, they were fighting in uneven terrain. It may have been muddy, um, and they were fighting against people in jeans and shoes when they were supposed to bring cleats. <clears throat> Not, all right, I'll end there. So these shoes made them more effective in combat and better able to respond to any situation that might arise. As Christians, we need to be ready to stand firm in the battle with Satan. And what allows us to stand firm? Well, an increasing assurance in the personal applications of the gospel of peace. And I stole that from a few different commentators, so I'll read it again. An increasing assurance of the personal applications of the gospel of peace. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to start reading in verse 6. Therefore, Colossians 2 verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So how did you receive Jesus Christ? By hearing the gospel, right? So as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord through the gospel, so walk in him. The gospel allows us to walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. Verse 7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. If you are grounded in Christ, if your hope lies solely on the gospel message that you received that salvation, you will be able to stand firm against the devil's attacks. It's like your feet are, you know, clamped down to the ground. Satan can come try and push you over to pull you away. But if your feet are firmly planted in the knowledge of the gospel, you're going to be immovable. Satan will have nothing on you. But the second that you lift your feet up, the second that you start trusting in yourself, thinking that you can help yourself, or start, you start trusting in a different false gospel, that is when you will lose your footing. 1 Corinthians 15, 59 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable. Another way to say, stand firm always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The way that we stand firm against the attacks from Satan once again is by relying on the gospel that saved us. And how do we do that? Once again, be in the word. Fill your mind with the things above. Also, pray for your own spiritual readiness. Acknowledge that you know that Satan will come and try to deceive you. Pray for yourself. Pray that you will be ready to overcome those attacks. Pray for your friends. Pray for the leaders. Pray for our church. Pray for the universal church that we would all stand firm. And pray that we would rely on God's word to help us against whatever Satan throws our way. So, so far this morning, we have examined girding our loins with the belt of truth putting on the breastplate of righteousness and putting on, you can call them the cleats of the gospel <clears throat> of peace. And as I mentioned, when we began our study, these three pieces of armor, the belt, the breastplate, and shoes were items that soldiers had on them all the time. In the same manner as Christians, our lives are always to be reflective of the truth found in scripture and lived out by Jesus. We're to be encouraged through justification and we are to stand firm on the truths found in scripture. 
So now we're gonna move toward the pieces of armor that we take up when we go to actively fight against the attacks from Satan. So fourth, the shield of faith. And turn back to Ephesians chapter six if you're not already there. The shield of faith. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith in which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield that Roman soldiers had in Paul's time weren't like the small circular shields that we think of. They were actually full-size, like body-length shield. And fun fact, the Greek word used for shield comes from the word door because the shield was so big, it kind of looked like a door. Most of these shields were about two and a half feet wide. They're about four feet tall. Remember, people were shorter at that time. So four feet tall, they covered most of their body. And they were about five to six inches thick. They were made with layers of wood, leather, canvas, and iron to provide mobility and durability during attacks. So why did these shields have to be this durable? What was the importance of the shield? Well, one of the most common ways that a first strike was made against another army was by an enemy launching flaming arrows at them, and like a lot of flaming arrows. So... Imagine you are a Roman soldier, you're on night patrol, and you're like, oh, look, the sun's coming up. (laughs) Nope, those are arrows. A ton of flaming arrows coming right at me. What would be helpful to protect you against a ton of flaming arrows? Yeah, your door shield, right? So you can pick it up and, and hide behind it. That is a very effective tool. In verse 16, the shield is described as a shield of faith. And as we've discussed already, who is the source of our armor? Yes, God. God is the source of our armor. So when we talk about faith here, we're not talking about the faith that we have. We're not saying I can stand up against the faith. Uh, I can stand up against the arrows that Satan shoots against me because I, my faith is so strong and I'm immovable. No, our strength comes the one that our faith is in. God is the one that ultimately protects us. So how do we show our faith in God? John Calvin said, faith is nothing and can do nothing without the word. In other words, the shield of faith is us knowing, understanding, believing, and relying what God says about himself in the Bible. Proverbs 30 verse 5 describes this perfectly. The writer says, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Thank you, smoke monster. The shield of faith can also be described as an unwavering trust in God and his word. The key word there being unwavering, an unwavering trust in God and his word. Because back in Ephesians 6, 16, what are we using the shield against? Well, against the flaming arrows of the evil one. And flaming arrow is just a, a term for any and all attacks that Satan throws our way, both internally, like temptation, despair, you know, things that we've talked about, internal things that come from within, from within us, and externally, things like false teaching, persecution, things like that. <clears throat> one quick example of how we can use a shield of faith in our lives. So if you have not experienced this this already, you will experience this one day. So have any of you ever been made fun of by your friends, your teachers, people that you work with for being a Christian, for, you know, believing in God and his word? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm sure some of you have. Eventually, all of you at one point will face that ridicule from unbelievers so how can, you she- how can you use the shield of faith to protect yourself from this attack? Well, turn to Psalm 119. Turn to Psalm 119. We're going to start in verses 21 to 24. <clears throat> Psalm 119, starting in verse 21. The writer says, You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. 
Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statues. Your testimonies are also my delight. They are counselors. When you are being ridiculed for your faith in God, you can go to these verses and see that God will, first of all, rebuke those who oppose him. And then after that, there's a prayer asking God to help you rely on him and his truths, <clears throat> knowing that they can refresh your soul and guide you along the correct path. That is how you use the shield of faith, going to the source of our faith and being reminded of the truth rather than the flaming arrows that are all around you. To close out this piece of armor, since we're still in Psalm, turn to Psalm chapter nine. Psalm chapter nine, verse 10. And this is such an amazing, encouraging verse that really summarizes why we can rely on God for our strength and our encouragement. Psalm chapter nine, verse 10. And those who know your name, so believers, Christians, will put their trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Wow, isn't that amazing? If you are a Christian, God will never forsake you. His unchanging word will always be there to guide you and to encourage you, especially when you need it the most. Go back to Ephesians chapter six. The fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. <clears throat> the helmet of salvation. Roman helmets were made up of several layers of different materials. First, there was a layer of iron, then a layer of bronze, and then cheek guards on either side, a neck guard that protected the back of the neck, a visor that went across the brow and down the middle of the face, and a strap that held it in place. And then there was that kind of decorative red mohawk looking thing. And historians think that the reason the Roman soldiers had that kind of decorative red piece was to make their soldiers look taller. So I think I'm gonna start wearing that and telling people I'm 6'3". <clears throat> yeah. But just like our modern day football helmets, the purpose of these helmet, the purpose of this helmet was to protect the head and the brain. I mean, it's kinda hard to fight if you have a arrow sticking through your head, right? Exactly. So from here on out, Paul switches up his verbs from putting on something to receiving something. And we start here with us receiving the helmet of salvation. Now, this doesn't mean that we have an active role in our salvation. We don't go to God and say like, hey, God, I am receiving the salvation and I'm accepting. Like, I am putting on the helmet of salvation myself. No, God is the one who saves us. Rather, the helmet of salvation gives us confidence in that whatever happens around us, the helmet gives us peace in the outcome of the battle. The helmet of salvation lets us rest in the knowledge that we have been saved and therefore we know what happens to us when we die. We know what happens to this world as it gets progressively worse and worse, right? So we don't really have to worry. That's the helmet of salvation. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that you can be lazy with your spiritual life. You can't just be like, well, I mean, I know that I'm fine. I mean, I know that I'm going to heaven. So the rest of the world, whatever, you guys are gonna die and get worse. So I don't care, but I, I'm good. No, we can't be lazy with our spiritual life just because we know what happens to us. Now, the helmet of salvation is what we use to be encouraged in times of uncertainty. Turn to Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven, at this point in his life, Paul has been a believer for a while. And this is what he says about his spiritual walk at that moment in time. In Romans chapter seven, Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Do y'all ever feel that way? 
I mean, I, I'm doing the things I don't want to do. I'm, I'm sinning, and I'm not doing things that I do want to do. Y'all ever feel that way? I mean, keep reading in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he moves into chapter 8 and talks about how that growth happens. That is how we put on the helmet of salvation, by reminding ourselves in times of fear, in times of doubt, discouragement, which are all attacks from Satan, of God's grace in us, that God's grace is at work in us. We won't read it, but write down 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. In this section, Peter is reminding the people who are currently being distressed by various trials that God is using that sanctification to grow them in their faith. And to close out the helmet, write down Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you remember this verse, that God will continue to perfect you until the day that you die or Jesus Christ returns, it's going to be hard for Satan to discourage you. Our final piece of armor is the sword of the spirit. <clears throat> the sword of the spirit. The last thing a Roman soldier would grab before heading off to battle is his sword. And it's important that the sword is the last thing that he grabs because it'd be pretty silly if he you know, grabs the sword first and then tries to like gird his loins and hold the sword while trying to put on his fancy helmet and breastplate, right? So the last thing that he would grab would be his sword. <clears throat> Soldiers would typically hold their shields on their left hand and use their dominant hand, mostly their right hand, to, you know, chop and attack using their swords. So offensively, we know what swords are used for, right? For poking, stabbing, slashing. But defensively, though, they would use their swords to block the, bow, the blows of other swords, or there was also like giant javelins that were thrown, so they could deflect them out of the way. How do we use the sword of the Spirit? which as we look back in Ephesians chapter six, um, Paul clarifies that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. <clears throat> the sword, the spirit inspires the sword, which is the word of God. And Paul describes his reliance on the spirit in his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, six through the end of the chapter, um, you know, just write down 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul says that the only way for us as Christians to understand what God says in his word is through the help of the Spirit. So how can we use the, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, to encourage us? Well, first of all, if you look at our first point, which was the belt of truth, we already talked about using the word to be encouraged, right? Well, there's two distinctions that we need to make here. The, the belt of truth is looking at scripture as a whole and understanding the concepts that are found in scripture and acting on the things that we know that are true in scripture. So the belt of truth, everything that is found in scripture. The sword of the spirit is a very precise surgical attack against the attacks that Satan has against us. <clears throat> so, for example, if you are being tempted, which one of these two things would be more effective? So you have, pick your favorite, not favorite temptation, that's a really bad way. Pick a temptation that you face. And which of these two ways is a more effective way to combat it? If you think, all right, I know the Bible says I shouldn't sin, so I'm just not going to sin. I mean, is that technically true? Yes, the Bible says that over and over. Or the second way, if you think to yourself, all right, I know 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overcome you, but such is common to man. Our God is faithful, who will not allow me to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. All right, I know that's what this specific verse says and I know I'm facing this temptation. So I trust that God is gonna be faithful to me right now and through his might and my faith in him, 
I can overcome, overcome this temptation. Which was more effective? Point number two, right? Because you're looking at your specific circumstance that you're going through, you're finding a verse in the Bible that directly uh, applies to you at that moment, and you're using it to thwart the attacks of Satan. I mean, this tool is so effective that Jesus, when he was being tempted in the wilderness, he didn't just look at Satan and be like, well, I'm God, you're Satan, you suck, you're going to lose anyway, so... No. How did Jesus combat him? With every temptation, Jesus goes back to a verse and says, I'm not going to do this because this is what Scripture says. It's an extremely effective tool in combating sin and combating the attacks of Satan. The difficult part of this verse is you have to know where to go, right? Which goes back to having an understanding of God's word. And we have these fancy phones and computers. You have youth leaders that love you and want to help you. You do have a lot of resources available to you when you are struggling with something to go to and say, you know, where in scripture does it say this? I'm struggling with fill in the blank. How does the Bible help me? That is using the sword of the spirit to fight against temptation. (sighs) That was a very fast overview on the armor of God. Pastor Tom went through the section in late 2010, and I think he took about one, if not more, uh, lessons for each armor of God. So I would highly encourage you to go listen to his sermons because they are very encouraging, they're very challenging, but ultimately what I want you to walk away with this morning is fill your mind with things above, meditate on his word, rely on the Holy Spirit for understanding and trust that God will fulfill all his promises to us. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that we are not alone in this fight. We thank you that we don't have to rely on ourselves because if it was up to me, I would fail every day. I had nothing in me that allows me to be successful against the attacks of Satan. But thankfully, we have your word. We have faith in you. We have the armor that you provide for us so that we can be people who are successful against the attacks of Satan and his world. I pray that you would help us to grow in our walks with you. Help us to grow in our understanding of what it means to be a soldier in your army so that we can be effective ministers of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.